Our Old Testament reading comes from chapters in Exodus 1920 and 24. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God, and God spoke, All these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, And the seventy elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. So don't fall asleep yet. There's a lot of big words in there. It's a long passage, a lot of strange concepts and ideas, but I'm here to help us understand that, and I hope I can do that. And we're using this passage to answer the question of why does in-town exist? And so if you're here visiting with us for the very first time, it's a great Sunday to touch base, to check in, to find out what in-town is all about. We're going to lay out that idea, um, who we are and why do we exist in some detail this morning. And then next week we'll be beginning a study of the book of Galatians, um, tentatively titled the epistle or the letter of the heart set free. And so check your email uh, inboxes this week. I'm going to send out some recommended resources and an outline and that sort of thing that I hope will help you as we go through this study together. As we begin, uh, let me pray for our time together. Dear Jesus, we pray that you would be with us. We know you are for us. We know you love us. And we pray that we would rest in that love. Wherever we're coming from, whether we are convinced that you are who you say you are, whether we have significant doubts, whether we are here just by accident or by invitation or by a concerted effort and by determination because we want to be with you, I pray that you would meet us where we are, that you would take a step towards us and that we in return would take a step towards you. Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and now the preaching, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How does a provincial farm boy become persuaded that he must travel as a soldier to another part of the world and kill people that he knows nothing about? This is the question that William Cavanaugh, who's a professor at DePaul in Chicago, tries to answer 
in a book that he is uh, trying to think about how, why do we do the things that we do? What motivates us? What are the, the secular and the spiritual liturgies at work in our world that we go through in our daily lives that convince us to do certain things? And he argues that this farm boy doesn't sign up for an idea, a concept. He doesn't fly across the world ready to kill someone because of something he knows in his head, but because of something that he loves. It's not an idea, but an ideal. He's willing to fight for ideals that may not even align with his own self-interest. He's putting his self and his body at risk. And he does so because he's been conscripted into a mythology. This mythology, this story, supersedes his own story to such a way that he would go to basic training. He would put his life at risk and go across the world to fight someone he doesn't even know. This story, he believes, is not just seated in his intellect, but in his heart and in his imagination. And his imagination is so powerful that it moves him to fight. However we might describe ourselves spiritually this morning, we have stories that we live by. We have liturgies that we participate in. Whether they're spiritual or not, we have things that we worship. We have mythologies that we believe in and make decisions by. And we all have symbolism, signs, even liturgy, where we find our way in the world and make decisions. The Christian offer of salvation is an invitation to switch stories and thereby to change lives. And it's not a story that is laid on top of the stories that we're living by now, but it's a story that supersedes all other stories. This is the story that God is wanting to have the Israelites remember. Remember your story. Remember who you are. Remember what has just happened to you. Remember your rescue. He's trying not just to give them the details. He's not just trying to remind them of the points of the story, but he's trying to capture their imaginations, to capture their desire, to form their heart and their loves. Our passage takes place at Mount Sinai, and this is an incredibly important place for the nation of Israel and for its history. Mount Sinai is where God meets with Israel, and he meets primarily with Moses, the leader of Israel. And they'll spend probably near to a year at Mount Sinai, hearing from God and Him setting the course of their upcoming history based upon His rescue, based upon the Exodus. In the biblical narrative, it goes on for 59 chapters from here all the way to Numbers chapter 10. So it's very important. This is a defining moment for Israel. They're about to be told why they exist and why they were rescued who they are as a people. And so it seems to me as we enter into the time of the fall where ministry and life seems to to grow in intensity and things start happening, that it would be a good idea for us to pause as a church and ask, well, why does in-town exist? Why are we here? Why do we bother getting up on Sunday morning and showing up here and showing up in community groups and showing up at the rescue mission? What is our purpose and why do we exist? What is the purpose for not only this institution, but if you're connected to it, what is your purpose as it concerns your church? 
Now, it's not perfectly clear but the te- in the text, but Moses probably makes three different journeys up to the mountain. He meets with God, and then he comes back down, and he tells the Israelites, and he tells the elders that are gathered there, here's what God has said. And he comes down this time, and he reminds them of their story. Verse 4 basically means remember. Remember your story. Remember that I carried you on eagle's wings. What does that mean? Well, eagles are very symbolic in the Old Testament. And partially, they're symbolic of this great care that a mother eagle has for its chicks, that it gathers them in the nest and protects them and loves them. But it's also that he is fiercely powerful. An eagle is a bird of prey. It's a predator. And so God is one who is very loyal and tenderly parental and yet also fierce and powerful and not to be trifled with. And then verse 5, remember that. Why? Remember that I carried you on eagle's wings so that you can obey, so that it changes your life. Remember this so much that you begin to live differently, that your purposes change, that a reason you exist begins to form in your minds. In other words, their rescue, the exodus, is simultaneously free of charge. God initiated it. God did it. It wasn't because they earned it, and yet it's infinitely costly. God rescued them, and now he says, obey. Live like I would want you to live. God was moved to rescue them from slavery because he delights in them. But something is expected in response. Obedience obedience. And throughout the Bible, obedience is not something that we do to get God's attention, to earn His favor, but it's predicated upon the work that God has already done, that they have been saved, they have been rescued, and now they're obligated. Now they are to obey. In other words, obey because of who God is, because of His character, not in order that you would receive something in return. But maybe you caught this when we read, because verse 5 does appear to have a bit of conditionality in it. Because what does Moses say? Now, if you obey, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be these things, which we're going to lay out in a moment. It sounds like God is bargaining here. It sounds like he's laying out something that if you obey, then you will receive. It's a relationship that is conditional upon their obedience. But what's the condition? Keep my covenant. What is he talking about? Well, in the next chapter, in chapter 20, as we read the first few verses of, he lays out this charter of obedience. He lays out a covenant with Israel that is describing how are they supposed to live in the land that they are going to inhabit. And so it seems at first glance that that Moses is saying, that God is saying through Moses, if you follow these commandments, then you will be. But it seems that Moses is referring to something not that is forthcoming, but something that has come before. And this happens throughout the Exodus. The book, Exodus, is always referring back. Remember, think about, consider these things that you've read previously. And he is saying, remember. And if you go back to chapter 2, this concept of my covenant is described. He tells us what his covenant is. God heard their groaning, that is, in Egypt, and he remembered his covenant 
with Abraham, with Isaac, and with, J- with Jacob. So God looked upon the Israelites and was concerned about them. You see, God made a covenant, that is, a commitment, a promise to Israel. And when Israel was in slavery, he remembered that promise. He remembered the covenant. Not that he had forgotten intellectually, but it motivated him to do something about this situation. The Exodus is about God keeping his covenant with Abraham. God had promised Abraham and his descendants, so he couldn't leave them in Egypt. And he carried them on eagle's wings to this place of safety and gives them their identity, their mission. This is who you are. And so that changes the way a bit that we read chapter, verse 5. Now if you keep my covenant, that is his promises, if you follow his faithfulness, if you respond to his grace, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are very important words, very important concepts. So let's take a few moments to look at them. First of all, remember you are my treasured possession. What anniversary did we celebrate in our country this past week? It was the anniversary of 9-11, and there were lots of places that held memorials. They held what? Remembrances of this event. And you saw signs that people carried, signs on t-shirts and so forth that said, we will not forget. Remember 9-11. Is it remember the date? Are they worried that we're going to remember the date of when this took place? Are they going to, they think we're going to rem- forget the fact that terrorists flew planes into buildings and killed many people? It's far deeper than that. Most of us in this room, unless you're very, very young, know the details of 9-11. You probably remember it in, in great detail. But far more than just remembering the date or remembering what happened in kind of the bits and pieces of the history, What these signs are saying, what these memorials are trying to get us to do is remember the way you felt on that day. Remember the sense of injustice that you had. Remember the sorrow that you had over those people that were killed. Remember the sense of confusion that you may have had over how someone could hijack a plane and fly it into a building to begin begin with. Remember the commitments that we made as a nation. That's what those signs are trying to do. It's that the memory is far more than remembering details. It's remembering how it changed us and how it formed us. Not details or knowledge, but renew your imagination. That's remembering in the Bible. That's knowing in the Bible. It's your imagination, it's your desires, it's your loves. And God is telling Moses to tell the people, remember what it was like to be a slave who was rescued. Remember what it was like to be drawn out of slavery and carried on eagle's wings. Remember what it was like to know that God had made promises to you that were irrevocable. Remember what it was like to feel that you were His treasured possession. Let you identify, this imagination allows us to identify ourselves as God's treasured possessions and let that guide us into life. Now, 
for many, many of us, we live by, well, all of us live by our memories, our sense of past. It, it shapes us. But often our memories terrorize us, right? We have hurtful words that we remember that have really shaped us, hurtful words from a parent or rejection in childhood. We didn't make the team. We didn't make the, the varsity team. We weren't picked in, on the playground. We, were, we remember our biggest failures. We remember our breakups. And we live out of those memories because they're not just mental images. They're not just details and information. They've captured our imagination. They've captured us in such a way that we define ourselves and we make decisions out of those memories. They've shaped us. Now, here's where we get to the point where we ask about why does InTown exist? Because what would it look like? What would it look like if InTown was a community of people who weren't dominated by memories that accuse us and undo us and disown us and oppress us, but the dominant memory that drives our collected lives? was that God intervened in this world and didn't just take us out of political slavery, but He gave us His only Son so that you and I can stand before God with the verdict of the future being brought in to the present, that you are forever His child and that we as a church are forever His children. What if that were the case? How would that change the way we thought about our individual relationship with the church? How would that change how we dealt with our possessions and our money? How would that change the way that we counsel our own hearts when we deal with anxiety and worry? How would it change our community? How would it change our community life if we saw our, as our calling, the reason that we exist is to help people to get to the place where the dominant image that drives their life is what God has done for them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To get people to the place, to invite them into that story where they begin to understand, maybe for the first time, that they are God's treasured possession. What if that was our reason to exist? Who would not want to hear that? Who would not want to at least consider whether that was true? Well, that leads us to the second thing that he tells Moses to tell the people. Not only did I carry you on eagle's wings because you are my treasured possession, but he says you are to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, the first thing you notice is that neither of those are singular. They're plural. They're given to a community to live out. God rescued a community, not just a number of individuals, and he is commissioning a community to mediate God's presence to the world around them. And this community is both moral and it's missional. It's going to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. So moral. And he's giving them a charter in the next chapter, the Ten Commandments that we talk about. This is how you are to live before me and before the nations. This is how you are to organize your lives in such a way that reflects me. They are to be a community that values faithfulness, a community that values, values honesty, a community that seeks justice for the poor and the outcasts and the refugee, a community that relieves the burdens of others, a community of souls that are at rest and at peace, and that there is peace and life within their families, a community of sexual integrity, a community that is content. 
That's an overview of the Ten Commandments that he's about to give them. Why? Well, these things aren't just busy work. These aren't just your assignments. God is saying, I made you, and I love you, and I want your life to flourish. I want there to be joy in your life. And he describes for them what a life of flourishing, what a life of joy looks like. This is how I want you to live. You see, he gives them the Ten Commandments, not so that they will be loved, but because they already are. They are a holy nation set apart unto him and for him. They're also a kingdom of priests. Not only are they to be a moral community, but a missional community. What do priests do? They help people find their way to God. They mediate the presence of God into situations where he appears to be absent. When I meet with someone in a counseling situation, my job really is to find that place where that person is thinking that God is absent, that God is not present, and to try to help them put their finger on the place that God is present. And it may be a hard place. It may be a sorrowful place. But as a priest in that situation, it's to mediate the presence of God, to say God is really present here. He is really at work, and let's see what he's doing. They help people find their way to God. You see, his covenant with Abraham wasn't to create a community that is walled off from the world, that is set apart in terms of location or just primarily behavior, but set apart in terms of it being a gift to the world, that they were to be a kingdom of priests mediating the presence of God so that the world could know That was the original command that he made to Abraham, the covenant he made in Genesis 12. I am going to bless you, Abraham. My presence is going to be upon you and your family and your descendants after you so that you can be a blessing to all people, a blessing to the nations. And later in Israel's history, Isaiah the prophet tells them, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing for you to be a moral community that is walled off from the world. You are also to be a missional community. These things always go hand in hand. They must go hand in hand. You're to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that have to do with in town? Because we're reading passages that are given to Israel In the case of Isaiah, probably 2,600 at least years old. In Exodus, even longer. These are given to the the Israelite nation. But you see, Peter, the apostle Peter, picks up on this passage. He picks up on the, the thread of the Old Testament. And he says, this is now you, church. All of these promises were given to a community that now leads to you, and you are to take these promises as your own. And he takes up this very passage in Isaiah and says to the early church, this is now your purpose. This is why you exist. You are to be a moral community and a missional community. In town exists to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, a community whose character is shaped 
by the presence of the living God whose character is changing to be conformed more into the image and the behavior and the life of Jesus himself, but also a community which extends itself so that others can find their way to God. That's why in-town exists. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, that, that's a beautiful picture. It's a compelling picture, but that's not my experience with the church. And generally speaking, you know, maybe you would say a church's understanding of its own morality has an inverse relationship to my interest in being a part of it. Their good behavior turns them inward and makes them stuffy and judgmental. And many times in church history and with many churches, and maybe it's true to some degree at end town that that can take place. But when we talk about a holy nation, we're not talking, first of all, about personal piety and personal devotions, but a a community that is giving itself up for the world, that's sacrificing itself so that others can find their way to God, that is so radically committed to the character and the missional servant heart of Jesus that their character is attractive and compelling, not repulsive. That's what we want at InTown. We are never 100% successful, but we want to lead in that way. We want to be drawn into the world in that way. Matthew Paris is an atheist journalist uh, in the UK, and he writes about his experience visiting a charity in Africa. And he says, Pumpe, that's the name of the charity, helps rural communities to install a simple pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. And I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling to Malawi refreshed another belief, too, one I had been trying to banish my whole life, but an observation I'd been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldviews, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I have become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real, and the change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick. They do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or a school and say that the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts, he says. Faith does more than support the missionary. It's also transferred to their flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. And he then cites Africans converting as they've been helped physically, as their needs their tangible needs have been met. They also convert to the faith of those that are bringing the help. And he would fear 
uh, as someone who grew up in Africa, that they would just adopt Western culture and that the Christian's presence would ultimately be imperialistic. But he finds, he says, far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others. You see, what he's talking about is their conversion created a curiosity, a softness. It made them holy but loving. They began to live as God's people in such a way that even the most committed atheist was perplexed by them and simultaneously drawn towards them. It was their holy lives, their commitment to others, their commitment to the tangible needs of people who are in desperate need of them. That was part of their holiness. They were a holy nation, but also a kingdom of priests. And they allowed those people who were having their needs met to also meet with the living God. What if in town exist, existed to be a community that lived unto God in this way, that considered obedience a serious thing, and yet our obedience doesn't create boundaries, but moves us into the world with love and with grace? inviting other people to consider what it might be, what it might be like to be loved and cared for by God, to be His treasured possession. Let's pray that that would be true of us in our families, in our individual lives, in our workplaces, and as a church. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, often just getting up and getting out of bed and going to work or going to school or just fulfilling the basic obligations of what it means to be a human, a citizen, seems so difficult. And to think about trying to reach out to the needs around us when our needs seem to be so great. When, and it seems so difficult to try and strike up a conversation with another person uh, about what it might be like to uh, be a Christian, what it might be like to be a uh, treasured possession of God. It does seem difficult. Lord, let us be people who are not imperialistic with our religion, but servants through it, that we would serve those around us, that we would carry up, pick up and carry their burdens, just as we do to one another here in this congregation. Make us to be soft and curious and open people who are seeking to engage the world around us with the love and grace of Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen.